0: Love the haiku, love the
1: sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet,
0: love the words, from East Leeds FM.
2: Sometimes happens up here in the open spaces of Northumberland. My water supply was cut off. We come
3: from fire, we come from
4: snow.
2: And on a day when the Met Office issued their first ever extreme heat, Amber Warning, as temperatures rose to over 30 degrees centigrade in the UK, I couldn't turn on the tap and pour myself a glass of water In Our Element, a poet's inquiry into climate change. Episode 3, Water.
5: Around the world we are seeing increased frequency and scale of extreme weather events. The recent floods in Europe, the heat wave in America and Canada, record-breaking weather again in the UK this year is all pointing towards a kind of rapidly accelerating change in our climate. We need to look across what the weather is actually doing, how the weather and the environment is changing, understanding the relationship between human activity and changing climate.
2: It used to be that the English were very good at talking about the weather as a way to avoid anything personal or controversial. These days, it's impossible to talk about the weather without straying into dangerous territory. Richard Dawson is Professor of Earth Systems Engineering and Director of Research and Innovation at Newcastle University.
5: We're currently close to a one degree world, about one degree warmer than we were several hundred years ago. The Paris Agreement sought to try and keep global warming to two degrees if we allow it to go far beyond that then we will have to make some really difficult choices between you know which areas and which people we're able to actually provide adequate protection to and indeed there's lots of evidence suggesting that parts of the world it might not be possible to grow food in anymore.
2: Talking about the weather was never as safe as we thought it was and it still masks unplumbable fathoms of uncomfortable facts and feelings. Talking about the weather. The gardener sat on the old wicker chair, hands wrapped round a mug of nettle tea. And even though the room was warm, curtains drawn against the night, the way we hold our breath between winter and what might follow. Snowmelt, rainfall, lambing storm. The words she spoke flung open the door on water, a river in spate rushing and roaring between us. Her worst fears of flood and disaster, an unstoppable lostness sweeping her away, tossed in the current of truth, lies testing the strength of this earth we cling to, as if our lives were leaves whispering, North, North, North. The work of Nancy Campbell Is informed by immersive writing residencies
1: undertaken at various points north. I grew up on the Northumbrian coast and I've always been curious about fishing law and, you know, in my own community and what keeps you safe from the storm. And there's a universality about this, but it's also intriguing to find customs elsewhere. I was at Doveroda Arts Centre, which is on the west coast of. North Denmark, Jutland, and Proverbs of Water was inspired by conversations I was having with local people. It's quiet here. Is it too quiet for you? The rain is soft as the conversations of coral. We used to swim by the dam and pull little fish out of our swimsuits. Then my friend started to get ill. The thief of birdsong tries to capture the colour of rain. It's just grey, he complains. A book bound in bricks. A scallop shell concertina. One is too heavy for this place, the other too light. An empty bucket is always a bad omen. Turn back if you see one at the outset of your journey. Religions in Greenland and the far north are very often animist. So you really do see a spiritual presence in rocks and ice and the landscape and things can come to life. Certainly in Greenland, the ice is very dynamic, it's always moving, it's a creaking, ugly difficult thing to live alongside on the ice edge. And I found that straightforwardness about that community. I was very glad and grateful to have encountered it, even to the degree of, you know, on a rocky island, you can't bury pipes in the ground. So everything was on show. You know how things work. Even the toilets don't flush. You know, there's no sewage. So you have to sort of look at all the elements of your own existence straight in the eye and acknowledge what you are as a creature, which I think is very important. In the world, I think we're now often in danger of forgetting unless we're challenged by individual ill health or a pandemic to understand our vulnerability as human beings. In North
2: America, poet Joy Graham encourages us to embrace that vulnerability and live our lives closer to the elements.
4: We have allowed ourselves to become dopamine addicted to technology that literally fractures our attention span you know you don't need a cancer diagnosis or a covid diagnosis to wake up and go wait a minute i wasn't living my life you don't need to lose your job or have a catastrophic flood come and take your town from you or you know all of the things that are happening to people all over the world You can, one can just decide, you know, I'm going to go outside today and sit and look at something, anything out there, not human, growing, whether it's a weather system or a tree or a field or a river or rain, just rain. Just like, what is rain? It is an astonishing, incomprehensible thing. So go and put yourself in the position which involves opening yourself up to negative capability, as Keats would have it, into a state of unknowing, what the uh, haiku poets called yugen, the sensation of the ineffable. Go sit outside in the rain. Just sit in it. Let it fall on your face. The times I've done that And I just try to imagine the water cycle. You don't need to take LSD to go half mad with the unbelievable vision you will have. If you just try to track all the places in the earth, deep in the earth and up in the sky, that water has come from and will return to. The water reawakens and makes
0: the whole land and just everything feel nice and cleansed and fresh. There's a whole cycle of stuff. Australian
2: poet Charmaine Papertalk Green sees water from
0: the perspective of the Yamaji Aboriginal nation. When the rain comes, it fills up the waterholes where our ancestors would camp around and where they'd get their precious water. It'd bring us bush foods. It would bring all the flowers. We're in our bush food season now, it's a good season because we've had good rain. But there have been other years where the rain hasn't been there and the berries haven't been there to collect or the emu eggs. We have seen the seasons changing with rain coming late and our summers being hotter than you can remember them being.
1: Nancy Campbell. For me, my way into the natural environment, the ice, the sea, and, and the snow was through traditional means of survival. It was by going back to these brilliant interventions in, in the landscape by the Greenlanders, sort of listening to the legends that people had told when there was famine because the sea wasn't offering up enough sea mammals and there was a legend about a hunter, Kuyu of He lived through a time which was the very opposite to our own, in which there was too much ice. The whole ocean was covered and there was no way for any of the humans to find food to eat. So it's a very old Arctic legend that deals directly with climate crisis. But there's a, an element of it where Kuyovasa is sent down to the bottom of the ocean to talk to the queen of the sea, Sedna, who is the one who controls the ice and also who can release the sea mammals which the humans need and it's a very perilous three-day journey and she's a very malevolent goddess but the sea goddess says when you go back home tell the people to stop emptying their dirty pots at my edges and then I will release the sea creatures so it's very directly seen even then that The strange behaviour of the ice and the dearth that people are suffering is their own fault for not looking after the land and for polluting the waters. It is kindest to measure depth in metres. A fathom is the span of a man's outstretched arms. The fjord, two fathoms deep, drowns his embrace. Wave dragon, wave star, now the pier leads nowhere. Wind blows waves across the road. We drive on a silver river. It takes one hour to reach the sun. My lover is wary of water. The car started to sink so quickly. The water is a loyal silence on all our heels. I'm lost. Give me the grey key again, the sea that tells the truth. It is easier to look at the stones than the sea until salt spatters your spectacles. We drank from blue china. The saucer did not match the teacup. Two sets must have got mixed up years ago. We sipped and consulted marine charts. The coast is new as a foetus and old as a fossil. The bedrock rebounds from the glacier's weight. Sea bewilders it
0: in regards to climate change and when we're looking at sustainable lifestyles and we're looking at why all those bushfires happen the way they do and concern about fracking and the impact on water and the water levels in the groundwater or sea level rises. Now, Aboriginal people have been living in Australia for thousands and thousands of years. So there's a lot of knowledge that's been handed down and we're a continuous culture. Anybody talking about climate change or the environment, land management, water management, need to talk to Yamaji people to embed those cultural
6: knowledges. It's about understanding your positionality of power and privilege of listening to those who have come before us, those who are on the front lines. Um, but at the centre of it needs to be the land, and at the centre of it, decolonisation.
2: Suzanne Daliwal, climate justice creative, campaigner and researcher.
6: This climate crisis bleeds through into all areas of our life, and it is in personal consumption and the way we live our lives. But this climate illiteracy that we've gone into where we're like oh isn't it about straws and turtles and yeah totally but if we zoom out and we look at the amazon which is being protected by indigenous people and just a few days ago legislation passed in brazil which basically opens up the amazon for even more destruction for more violence against indigenous people and for me personally you know I come from the Punjab in India, and it's British rule, which, you know, divided up that territory, which still has implications now with desertification, with water shortages. So we have to look at the history of these landscapes, and it's not to stay in it. It's so that we can move forward.
2: How did invasion, domination and division become the central plot of the human narrative? When did we surrender our own capacity to know we have everything we need right here? If we trust the ground beneath our feet and the evidence of our own eyes and ears and hearts.
4: We are on a thread between hundreds of generations on one side and the other of our small life. If we felt ourselves to be on that thread, a small bead on this long necklace. would be much more automatic for us to feel that our small moment here would be an opportunity to take the bucket from the people before us and pass it on to the people ahead of us we would do it instinctively because we would feel we were part of that community which of course native americans famously encoded the iroquois as you know the idea of the seventh generation ahead of one where the elders would walk along a river with the imaginary seventh child of the seventh generation ahead of them and say, you know, how much fish should I take out of this river for there to be fish for you? If you feel that you're in conversation with the past and the present, then it's easy to say, I'll save this for you.
1: A colony of herons of rare and timid animals can be mentioned, the birch mouse and otter. Dunes are the most fickle of landforms, ever blowing in land from the sea, ever on the move. Two blind oxen, bound together, once rested here. The church is dark, but through one window, water dances. Find a fish to catch a fish. There's nothing worse than a bare hook. Mussels are thirsty for the sea. Time
2: loops and spirals between past and future. But the only time we can act is in the present. And the climate crisis is asking us to make changes now, as one planet.
6: While we give space for the nuance and the complexity of how our cultures, identities are impacted by this, it's really important that we do find that space to come back as humanity. How can I connect to you about this if it's not the fact that we both drink water, that we both breathe air? and that connects to Sikhism because that is one of the basic premises of Sikhism. We give space for difference, but we're all essentially one. Can the pandemic awaken in us all an international consciousness? Can we build that sort of interconnected awareness that you know no international situation is separated? I think it's very dangerous
1: to assume that climate change is happening somewhere else. Although certainly other places than the UK are maybe feeling some of the effects more intensively, rising sea levels and small island nations already having to leave their homes and become climate refugees. And I think as a writer working in places like Greenland and Iceland, I've always been keen to look back at the place I'm from. As well. Where have the eels gone? There's a hint of net in the water, a line of floats and a black flag. A stone pulled up on a hook should be kept on land. A knot in a tangled line may not be undone. To cure seasickness, eat seaweed, smell rose root. Tickle your throat with a feather dipped in cod liver oil. Cut grass in a churchyard and place it in your shoes before sailing. You will know when you come to the river. After the funeral, wooden enemies were thrown upon the lake. Who climbs highest, the skylark or the snail? If you keep fossils in your study, Will you grow wiser, or just older? When you're tired, water makes a sound like sleep. And nothing happens. And nothing happens. And water sounds like silence.
2: Nancy Campbell, ending our water episode. In Our Element is presented by me, Linda France. It's a Sonderbug production with New Writing Norse in association with Newcastle University and is supported by the Audio Content Fund and Arts Council England. Thank you for listening. <laughs>
0: Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents,
1: love the words. From ELFM.
3: So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM and today we're talking to Jennifer Richards, Professor Jennifer Richards from the... uh, from newcastle university she's a director of newcastle university humanities research institute and she's going to be talking to us about somebody who to be honest i know very little about and uh there might be people out there who do are experts and i'm sure jennifer would be pleased to to hear to hear from you uh, the thomas well thomas nash of the thomas nash project so jennifer tell us uh, yeah very nice to have you with us first of all
7: thank you thank you peter i'm delighted to be with you
3: so first of all tell us um who Thomas Nash was and, uh, yeah, what he continues to be through the the Thomas Nash project.
7: So Thomas Nash was an Elizabethan writer. He was born in 1567 and he died at the age of 34, 1601, probably from the plague. Nobody really knows. And in in that short um, period, he collaborated with lots of writers who are really well known today. Shakespeare among them, Christopher Marlowe is another one. Um, and he uh, he wrote in prose, he collaborated on drama, but he um, is important now to literary scholars because of the way in which he expanded the English language and the experimental work he did with prose. So, so that's who Thomas Nash is, but um, the project is um, uh has grown actually it's been going for about um eight years and at the heart of it is producing a new edition of thomas nash's works his complete works and works that are ascribed to him but not securely uh, known to be by him so that is going to be published by oxford university press in 2023 probably Um, That's a huge project, it's a collective endeavour involving lots of different people. So editing his work and understanding um, uh, what he was saying, what he meant to communicate, the writers he worked with, um, what he was doing with language, that's at the heart of that project. Um, And alongside that, we have been trying to communicate some of the liveliness of Nash's work uh, through um, uh, reliving, uh, restaging uh, one of his plays uh, through a whole range of activities. We've been working with partners. We've been working with the Globe in London. We've worked with the Folger Shakespeare Library out in uh, Washington in the U.S. Lots of different activities. But basically, we're trying to um, uh, reacquaint people with Thomas Nash and understand the, the the role he played in the history of English language and its literature
3: well I mean first of all a bit about his life because he was he was um, he was quite controversial wasn't he He had he had very heated arguments with people
7: so he yes he was controversial Um, he pushed at the boundaries of what was acceptable and I think important to that side of his character is his relationship with Christopher Marlowe actually so he did um, he was the son of a clergyman He went to university, he went to Cambridge, he graduated with a bachelor's, but not with a master's, so he didn't see himself as having a career at university. He, um, in those days, he went to university to become um, a clergyman, and that didn't suit him, that didn't suit his temperament. He left university and went to London, and that's where he got involved in the world of writing, uh, writing for prints, it's a, it's a, a, and, uh, the, uh, working uh, with in theatre and with uh, dramatists. So he's really unusual in the period. He's one of that group of the first wave university graduates who decide not to get a stable job in the church, but to try and make a living, a precarious living through writing. So, um, And yes, he had lots of quarrels along the way. I mean, one of my um, colleagues reminded... So we tend to think of him as quite a a quarrelsome person. He had this long-running dispute with um, a Cambridge academic called um, Gabriel Harvey. It got so bad that in um, 1599, the bishops banned all of their books. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I was reminded by one of my colleagues that actually he... Had very strong friendships, so he was a great collaborator, and he was clearly loved by many of the people he worked with. So it does make you wonder whether the quarrels he had, which were played out in print, very new technology at the time, you know, um, uh, were there to help sell and
3: make money so you're editing that at the moment but i would be fascinating to hear what we can actually access on uh, you know that you're actually working on of nash's i mean it sounds i read um on the Thomas Nash project uh, website that he styled himself or i think it was actually on one of the podcasts very interesting podcasts that are there as well uh, a sort of a pen for hire and i wonder is is that something to do with the fact that does that connect with the fact that we don't really know him as a as a name like Marlowe and Shakespeare that he that he kind of invested himself in different kinds of writing?
7: Well, um, it's a really interesting question. I'm not. I think there are many reasons why he's not well known. Um, he sort of he used to be taught on English literature courses. So and people um, sort of um, um, it, within the sort of. Uh, study of literature he's kind of he's known off but not necessarily well read he's quite hard it's quite hard to read he writes he writes prose i'll say a little bit about that hardness in a moment because i think it's important but he's also not a dramatist so i mean he does collaborate collaborate with dramatists and he writes one plays but actually um at the moment uh, we tend to um explore um, the English Renaissance through it's through theatre. So prose and poetry has sort of fallen by the wayside a little bit. But he is a difficult writer to um, read. So he's very experimental with prose. He takes on these characters, that he speaks always in the first person, but as as somebody else. Mm -hmm. And um, it gives his it, it so you never know, you don't actually get through his writing a sense of the person very often. Uh, C.S. Lewis said um, something really important about Nash, I, I disagree with him, but I think it's a very good quotation. He says that if you asked me what Nash says, if you asked me what he believed in, I would have to say nothing. And that's because he's he's always playing telling us he's exploring through different persona. Also, sorry, go on. I'd say
3: that's quite a a, mod, a modern thing to do. I know modern is a is, is a sort of one of those terms that is 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 quite broad and, and difficult to find But I mean, it sounds like you know the idea of inhabiting sort of characters and not really making it clear who you who you are. That exactly, sounds like quite a quite a modern thing to be doing.
7: You're absolutely right, Peter. He's postmodern. I mean, he's he's modern in his time, but he's he reads like a postmodernist. Yes, I was saying that his prose is actually um, difficult to read for us now um, because he. Um, so, one of the things I absolutely love about Nash is actually his prose style. It's, it's very fluid, so you feel that um, you f- it feels very alive. But, but to get that experience of liveness, he writes these really long sentences but because, and he punctuates them to give them structure so that they the sentences have movement of thought. Um, we're much more used to grammatical sentences, which tend to be shorter. Yeah. So his sentences can be, can be fairly long and we're not used to reading a sentence that has three parts that might be a page long or half a page long. But what he's doing is he, It allows his characters to speak, change their mind. Um, He's trying to bring the experience of theatrical liveness onto the page. So he's got these fantastic metaphors that change shape in the middle. He's got, uses um, very concrete language. Um, And then he's got these narrators, these personae, who uh, are very varied. And also the other thing about his narrators is that they're untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. So when you're reading his prose, you're, 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 it, 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 it can feel like you're stumbling sometimes. You're trying to work out who, you know, what's being said, what this, this character wants from you, and slowly understanding that the characters are often tricksters, and that you're and that the reader is being brought up onto the page, into the book, only to be the butt of the joke. So it's quite, um, you've got to approach him in the spirit of of, uh, when you open a book and you start reading Nash, you know you're going on an adventure with him, but it's not a straightforward one, it's twisty. sentence. It's a very Nashian sentence. And I was hoping you'd ask me to read something actually. And so you'll get to um, so um, it's a is a character, it's, it's from his uh, book, prose uh, fiction, it's called The Unfortunate Traveller. Um, it happens to be the the text that I'm editing It's from 1594. And this text is um, spoken it's a, his writing is very oral. It's spoken by a character called Jack Wilton. And Jack Wilton is um, traveling across Europe, having all sorts of adventures. He starts off in an army camp with Henry VIII, and he ends up with marrying um, a prostitute in uh, uh, Bologna um, by the end of the book. Um, he, ends, he in the course of his adventures. He's nearly hanged on the scaffold. Um, he's uh, nearly um, poisoned, he meets all sorts of bad characters, but he's also a trickster. And he starts off this book by telling us about his tricks. And he assumes that the reader wants to learn his art, the art of tricking people. Hmm. So then he tells, he presents us with this character, um, a captain who he's going to trick, he's going to steal all his money. Hmm. And he's addressing the reader and he's telling the reader a little bit about this man, what a fool he is. And to do that, he describes him to us. And so I'll read this sentence. It's in three parts, but it's one sentence. Oh, my auditors, had you seen him, how he stretched out his limbs, scratched his scabbed elbows at this speech, how he set his cap over his eyebrows like a politician, and then folded his arms one in another, and nodded with the head as who would say, let the French beware, for they shall find me a devil. If, I say, you had seen but half the action that he used of shrugging up his shoulders, smiling scornfully, playing with his fingers on his buttons and biting the lip, you would have laughed your face and your knees together.
3: Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff, yeah, I love that so so thank you for reading that Jennifer um it, so Jack was presumably a fictional character
7: it's a fictional character, yes
3: so the whole the whole sort of memoir of Jack is a sort of fictional exercise really from that yeah
7: Amazing. it's a, it's a, it's a fictional and satirical exercise he's sending up through Jack through his um ordinary everyday tricksterish language he sends up lots of writers at the time but he's also sending up the reader. In the bit I just read out, he's pulling the reader into his narrative, making us his friend, yeah. saying, look at this guy. Look what a fool he is. Shall we trick him together? Yeah.
3: Lovely stuff. Well, I'd like to ask you, Jennifer, in a bit about a bit about his coining of words and the way he's really impacted the, the English language. Um, but first of all, just briefly, how, how did you come to Nash yourself?
7: So the... Um, well, actually, it's it's it, I used to I used to work on his enemy, Gabriel Harvey. So Gabriel Harvey is um, a Cambridge academic. Um, my my um, I was very interested in the history of rhetoric, and I became very interested in Gabriel Harvey. And so important to Harvey, um, who was never a great success, it has to be said, was his quarrel with Thomas Nash. And um, for a long time, I took the side of Gabriel Harvey because I thought he's a very serious fellow, he's trying his best, he's very moral, uh, tries to get his points across, um, got, you know, great values, all of that. So, and I wasn't that interested in Thomas Nash, who's just seemed a little bit too cheeky, um, very tricksterish, but somehow I got drawn in and started to work with colleagues. Uh, We put together the idea for the Thomas Nash project. We realized that Nash was important and that he hadn't been edited for over 100 years and that we felt that, um, this is about 10 years ago that we started talking about this, we felt that he was missing from our history of uh, early literature and especially of Shakespeare, actually. We felt very strongly you can't understand Shakespeare without Nash. So I got to Nash through his enemy.
3: Fascinating. Uh, I'm sure Nash would be amused by that
7: i'm sure
3: he would yeah <laughs> um so tell us a little about uh yeah i mean i want to know also what the project is actually doing particularly I've, I've, I've saw some very interesting material on the website about the work you're doing with young people around now but also um yeah so in terms of his impact on shakespeare because obviously we know that shakespeare uh, we know all sorts of very familiar phrases in the English language come from Shakespeare just yet yeah, but the imp- impact of Nash on Shakespeare and his coining of new language would be fascinating
7: yeah well, the um uh, so first of all about uh, with working with um young people so we did um some fantastic work with um, Perry Mills he's the deputy headmaster of a school in Stratford and he uh, is a boys school so uh um, uh, comprehensive boys' school. It's unusual, I think, but they—they they, uh, Perry Mills has um, gets the boys to perform Shakespeare plays or early, all sorts of early modern plays actually, Marlowe, um, John Lilly, all of them. And we asked him if he would work with us on restaging one of um, uh, Nash's plays, which he and the boys did. Was, that's all up on the website. That's they were absolutely fantastic. But in the course of that, we really wanted to work with young people to see how they got on with Nash, because lots of academics find Nash's prose quite difficult for the reasons I've explained. Mm. Uh, Perry said to me that we're going to read his prose aloud, we're going to treat it as if it were performance, come and watch, come and listen and see how they get on. And my God, it was amazing, Peter, because these young lads, they had no problem with the prose once they understood that it was like a play, that it was performative, and they knew when to pause and to take on characters, they they read it much more easily than my colleagues. It was really, really, a, a, it was a lot of fun and a real revelation. So that's the work that we did with Perry. Um, now on Shakespeare. So not a lot of not, not a lot is known about um, this Relationship between Shakespeare and Nash, but we um, uh, stylometrics, uh, which is um, a tool we use to understand um, who wrote which text when uh, the authorship is not clear, has revealed that it's very likely that Shakespeare wrote the first act of one of Shakespeare's plays or a play that's attributed to Shakespeare the sixth part one. So we're going to edit, we're editing that. That, that, Nash, so, wrote it, sorry, that, Nash, that Nash wrote it. Wrote it. Yes, yeah. Nash wrote that. Yeah. Um, so so we know that playwriting and that Shakespeare himself was a collaborator. Yeah. So that's, and also Nash writes about that play. He writes about a scene in it in one of his, uh, one of his prose uh, pamphlets, mm. uh, talking about the impact of seeing the characters come alive on stage. Mm. So we know that. We also know, so the Unfortunate Traveller, the text I'm uh, writing, is full of what sound like echoes from Shakespeare. And one of the things we can't know right now is whether he's reading Shakespeare and sending him up or whether Shakespeare's reading Nash and using, uh, plagiarising, well plagiarising is too strong, but adapting some of his vocabulary, some of his ideas. And the one other play that uh, is very close to one of Shakespeare play that's very close to Nash is Love's Labour's Lost. So it's thought that one of the characters, um, I think it might be, might be Moth, I can't remember, actually, it's just escaping me, is based, meant to be based on Thomas Nash. And that play Love's Labour's Lost is all about linguistic invention, it's about coining words. It's about playing around with the language, and um, it, it's thought that that this is the that that, that is um, that Shakespeare is thinking about playing with uh, the quarrel between Harvey and Nash and their arguments about words.
3: I mean, it, it's, did Nash have that kind of, he knew Marlowe as well, obviously, and he, I mean, he must really have known well. Shakespeare, I
7: think. Yes, he collaborated with Marlowe as well, so um, it's very contentious, I'll say it now, you might get people writing in and complaining, <laughs> but we are, we are editing um, Dido, a play attributed, that, that's, so, that's Marlowe's play, but on the title page, it says, by Christopher Marlowe and Thomas Nash, and so we're taking that attribution, seriously. The Marlowians like to think it's a Christopher Marlowe play only. And we're saying, hold on, Nash's name is on the title page. And Nash refers to, uses scenes from Marlowe's plays all the time in his writing.
3: I'm gonna be devil's advocate Jennifer and, 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 and ask you I mean it, obviously you know, a lot of research is going into Nash and I'm just thinking people might be listening to this and going yeah, well, yeah we know about Shakespeare and his plays are still performed and also Marlowe but you know Nash really you know why why all this research into Nash what if you could put it in a nutshell what what is the impact he has had for instance on the way we speak and the way we write now
7: he's really but okay so I would say to those those listeners, those lovely listeners. Well, he's really important because he was influential and he's one of the gaps in the history. He was very, he was really important in the 20th century. People knew about Nash. People, so the, uh, Marshall McLuhan's idea really uh, central to the way in which literary studies developed Um, thinking about um, orality versus literacy. For him, he wrote his PhD on Thomas Nash and Thomas Nash shapes his thinking. It's just that we've lost contact with, we've lost that connection. But Nash is, so just to, um, you know, a really important source for us as we're trying to understand Nash is the Oxford English Dictionary. Fantastic resource. Um, Of the many thousands of citations, quotations that they use to illustrate linguistic usage. Number 28 in their list is Thomas Nash. So they, they, they use Thomas Nash is their a go-to source, first citation of an example. And I just want to give you some words that you may be surprised, uh, uh, but I've only picked out a few, but these are words that are attributed, first uses, usage is attributed to Thomas Nash. I wonder if you'll be surprised by some of them, Peter. Mm. Abhorrent. Uh. Adjective, uh, recoil with repugnance. First citation, first example of usage, comes from uh, Thomas Nash, Lenten Stuff, 1599. Or oh, this one, I really like this one. It's so everyday. Above board. Oh. It's an adverb, uh, and it's first usage. Thomas Nash, 1594, Terrors of the Night. But it means, for him, having your cards visible above the playing table so that nobody thinks you're trying to trick them. Wonderful. And you? the last one, I really love this one. Um, did you know, Peter, that the person who coined our phrase balderdash was Thomas Nash?
3: <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> That's brilliant, boulder Dash. Is that just a... Yeah, what is boulder? I mean, you know, literally, is, is is yeah? What is boulder? Did he just make up that word, or was it a, a sort of like a conflation, a, a merging of two other concepts? What is boulder dash? What it
7: well, it, for him, it means frothy liquid, right. and I suppose for Earth it just means well yeah, rubbish, yeah, yeah yeah rubbish yeah exactly. i'm just wondering whether dash and
3: yeah. boulder yeah boulder well, he
7: does he does he does i don't know in that case how he arrived at that i mean a lot of the words like abhorrent they're latinisms yeah, sure. um and so he's he's borrowing them and bringing them into the language and they catch on a lot of his uh, coinages don't catch on uh, Bodgery, for example
3: Bodger is a good one. I might yeah, that. it is a good.
7: One. I think we should have that one. Or Bisbangles is another one I really like. But he does—you are right. He does put words together. He does that to create insults, actually.
3: Yes, and I saw some of the insults and put downs that were that on the website. In fact, were wonderful. Uh, have you got any examples of of Nash put downs or? Well,
7: or- there's, there's one on the website which I really like, and um, actually, it was, uh, my colleague uh, Kate DeRaker, who did the research for this, um, but. Um, this is a, a term for somebody uh, who's um, a miser. Um, and he comes up with this phrase, well, there are lots of phrases for misers in the period, um, but this is Nash's crusty cum So I don't know, it, it doesn't sort of trip off the tongue, but what he's doing is he's combining, he intensifies insults. So he takes wor- words that are used in the period. Some of them are um, insults already and he puts them together. So he creates these, um, you know, there we've got uh, crusty, um, meaning hard, and also um, bad-tempered. Um, the Latin word with, come, and then twang, nobody quite knows what twang means, but but it, we know it's an insult. Um, um, I think I, when I looked at, at the OED yesterday, it could also mean bad smell, but he puts them all together to really drive home the point he doesn't like you.
3: So tell us if people were, um we're thinking now that i really like the sound of thomas nash and i want to read something by him uh you know just as an introduction that uh, would take me into his world and the world of the language what where, where would you where would you take that person where would you where would you direct them
7: well there's quite a bit of stuff um if you can google stuff there's quite a bit of stuff online the website has got um the thomas nash project website if uh, people google it then uh, they'll find lots of different resources and bits of text um the there are he is in print there are various editions already um um but um i suppose but otherwise i might need to wait because we our edition is going to be a couple of years old spelling um it's going to be quite a weighty edition and then from that we're going to do we're going to modernize but we're still it's it's I know it's it's just it's just long slow work getting it right.
3: Absolutely. And if people want a, a bit of a, a bit of uh, naughtiness they can google Nash's dildo I believe.
7: They can. Well, it's, it's called um, uh, it's Nash's dildo in one manuscript it's also but it's called Choice of Valentines as well. But there is some lovely on the website. There's um, the actor uh, Jimmy Tucker um, has, is reading out some of some of the work, and the play that um, Perry Mills's um, Edward's Boys put on for us. It was performed at a school in uh, uh, in Croydon, South Croydon. That was filmed, and that's all live up on the uh, up on the website. So I really encourage people to to experience Thomas Nash live if they were interested.
3: And a, a friend of mine who's a, uh, a poet, uh, Meg Peacock, she's now in her early 90s. She remembers studying Nash, I think at Oxford. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, and uh, talked about um, a book called The Unfortunate Traveller.
7: Yes, that's, that's the one I read the, the quotation from. That's the one I'm editing. Wow. Yes, it's brilliant. So. It's, it's a
3: better known one yeah i asked her to uh we have a regular email uh, contact and i asked her to i said but do you know about thomas nash and she managed to dredge up uh, various things from, from sort of you know she's as i say 90 now so she was at oxford in the 1930s 40s oh fantastic so, yes thank you so much jennifer for, for 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 being with us today on love the words and uh it's been fascinating to talk about thomas nash briefly before you go any uh yeah any any other projects you've you you mentioned something about bees yes
7: yeah, so when um hopefully we, this is the fact fi- this is the last final the big push for the thomas nash project this year um but then when that comes to an end i'm um, i'm going to be working with uh, scientists and musicians editing another book uh very different to uh, thomas nash this person charles butler is um was a clergyman and he was very interested in bees he um wrote a book in which he wants the reader to enter and experience understand bees and to become a bee um so watch out for that
3: wow i we certainly will okay well well maybe come on the um come come on afterwards and talk about that at a later stage be nice to keep in touch with you
7: thank you it's been such a pleasure peter i'm really really um grateful for the opportunity thank you
3: The reason I'm talking to Jennifer today is is uh, a sad reason, but also this is a positive thing that comes out of it. I, I, uh, one of my uh, oldest and best mates, Professor James Law, who worked in the speech therapy department in uh, speech and language at Newcastle University, sadly died recently. And uh, through uh, correspondence around his death, I, I I saw the work of Jennifer. So, Jennifer, it would be just lovely if you could say a, f- a few words about your experience of working with James.
7: Yeah. James was um, a very uh, lovely uh, colleague at Newcastle University. We did over the last couple of years, we did quite a bit of work together. We were trying to create connections and opportunities for coll- colleagues across the university. We came together really um, at the beginning of COVID, where we um, um, were doing work um, trying to understand the role, that arts and humanities and social science can play in the pandemic. We were um, uh, uh, did some uh, research together. But I can't tell you um, how valuable he was as a colleague, as a good friend. Um, yeah, I've I, I, I just got to, to say it how I, I feel it, really. Yes, I miss him very much. It's been, um, he was such a fantastic connector. He was just such a supportive person, and he could see um, the good in things that people were doing and help them to expand their thinking. Um, He was very committed to um, thinking about words, thinking about reading, to literacy, to literature. He just thought expansively. It was just, yeah. So I'm very, very pleased that we came into contact Um, really in honor of his memory. So thank you very much for that, Peter.